The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. If you would join me in your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. And we are going to be looking at verses 9 through 12. Now many people struggle with making assertions or claiming to have certainty about anything. Of course, in our day, the philosophy known as postmodernism is built on the premise that we cannot be certain about anything and that the meaning of everything is ultimately interpreted by the receiver of the information and not the giver. But the issue of doubt is not a new concept. We see it in the Bible. We see it all throughout history. During the Reformation, Martin Luther had many spirited debates with Erasmus of Rotterdam. And Erasmus disdained Luther's claim that it's possible to be confident of the truth of an assertion. Luther, who many of you know was quite unbridled in many of his responses to his critics, to say the least, He responded to Erasmus and wrote, the making of assertions is the very mark of the Christian. Take away assertions and you take away Christianity. Away now with the skeptics. But as thinking thinking Christians, we we can't just wave off the, the question as to whether or not we can be absolutely sure. Can we do away with doubt as it pertains to our salvation, or must we live in the constant fear that perhaps we're living a lie? Doubt nags at our souls, but doubt can also serve the truth. Doubt is a good thing when it keeps us from believing things that are false and erroneous. Doubt helps us to sort out the difference between truth and error, and those things that are genuine versus those things that are fake. But when we begin to have doubts about our faith, we need to search for the principles that are certain. We need to look where things are objectively true so that we can build upon the foundation of what is sure. For the Christian, we have the evidences of God within us to prove our Christian faith. And we have God's word to tell us what those things are. Now, in some sense, As believers, we read the word of God, we believe what it teaches about when we place our faith and our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're standing upon his righteousness alone, we can be certain that we are in Christ, that we have communion with Christ, that we have faith in our great God who has saved us. God has not left us in the dark with regard to our being able to know that we are truly safe in him. And yet, as a people who have seeds of doubt in our hearts, we can also look to the scriptures to show us other evidences in our lives so that we can be sure that we are in the faith. In 1 John chapter 5, John tells his readers, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Giving assurance was the purpose of John's letter. And where do we turn? Where does he turn? 
to the objective principles that we have laid out in the scriptures and those certain truths are there so we can look at them and evaluate our own lives by them in order to determine where we stand. Christian assurance is possible. We can know for certain that we are in Christ and God most certainly desires that we do that as his children. The doctrine of Christian assurance is addressed in our confession of faith in chapter 18. In paragraph one, it says that those who truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. That's another way of saying what I just said, namely that we can be certain of our salvation. In paragraph two, it goes on to explain that our assurance is based upon the foundational truths, as I mentioned, of our righteous standing in Jesus Christ by faith alone and the evidence in our lives of the work of the Holy Spirit. Paragraph four also addresses the fact that we can often experience doubt and we have our assurance shaken intermittently throughout our lives when we are negligent to preserve it by falling into a, a conscious wounding of our sin or by grieving the Holy Spirit or by being overcome by sudden temptation, by spiritual depression, and even by physical suffering when we might doubt God's care for us. Now, I really do want you to be certain of your faith, to not doubt whether or not you are saved. But when you do have doubt, you need to know it's not an uncommon experience for Christians and can actually be to your benefit when it pushes you in some sense to examine your own life and your own walk with God. This is, at least in my experience of what, 17 years of ministry now, one of the most common conversations that I have with Christians struggling in their sin and wondering if they were ever saved in the first place. But God in his kindness has given us the Holy Spirit who is reminding us of the truth of God's word and pointing us to the evidences of the life of faith as we live. So today and during our Lord's Supper services for the next few months, we're going to see what some of these evidences are. Today we have a more general overview of assurance and then in the months that follow we will look at more specific areas. So let's see what the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter six beginning in verse nine. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises." Well, today we're going to look at, in this passage, five ways that we can know that we have eternal life. 
And the first thing we see in verse nine is that you can know you have eternal life by the direction in which your life is going. Look again at verse nine, it says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Now this text is in the middle of a larger context where the author of Hebrews is writing about people who are apostate. In other words, those who have left the faith entirely. His point was that there are those who are in the church who aren't really Christians at all, but they appear to be Christians externally, at least for a time. Eventually, they will leave the faith, and we need to be, uh, we need to be aware of that reality. There are people who are apostate. There are people who will even in themselves be convinced of their Christianity and yet in the end they prove to be false. There are even people who will die and in their death assume that they're going to go to heaven only to face judgment and to be told that they were never in the faith in the first place. And I know that doesn't secure the hope that we're searching for as we think about assurance, but we can't affirm assurance while downplaying the reality of apostasy. It's these very things that we're looking at that will keep us from from being filled with such fear and doubt that these passages of scripture tend to present as we face the fact that many people are in fact deceived. It's real and we need to be aware of it. However, the writer here is actually reassuring believers. He's gotten done talking about apostasy and what we can look for and what we can see, but now he's affirming them and saying, but we believe, I see in you that you truly are of the faith. There are things that we see that are giving evidence to that. And so there's a lot that can be said about this aspect of our assurance, but really the author here is giving us a general statement that will further develop in the verses that follow. But what he's getting at is that there is sanctification and good works in the lives of God's people that are consistent with what the scriptures teach us regarding the genuine nature of saving faith within a person. 1 John 2, 3 tells us, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And so the question we have to ask when we read something like that is, am I striving to live according to the word of God? To walk in all of his ways, to honor him, to glorify him with with my life, to obey him, not merely out of a sense of duty, but out of a heart and a love and a thankfulness for who Christ is and what he has accomplished. We just heard earlier the use of the law, and this is what we call the third use of the law, that we're we're using the law of God as a rule of life for us, that we might live accordingly. And is the question is, is this the direction of my life? If so, there's very good evidence there that you're a Christian. According to God's word and the nature of man, anyone who has the spirit of God within them will show evidences of sanctification and good works. And if those things cannot be denied by the individual as being present in their daily life in some way, then there is reason for confidence. Now, we're not 
obviously. We're not talking about a life of perfection. We're not talking about a life of sinlessness. We are talking about a life in which the longer we walk with Christ, we sin less. Less and less of our life is tied up in sin. More and more of our life is spent seeking to honor the God that we serve. And because sanctification and good works according to the word of God are supernatural works, they're not anything that we can will or do on our own. Jesus spoke of this very idea of what direction we're headed in life. Remember in Matthew 7, Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Brothers and sisters, the road to destruction is an easy paved eight lane highway to hell. It's I-95 without any cars on it and you can drive as fast as you want. But the journey to the celestial city of heaven is narrow. It is difficult. It is filled with many dangers, toils, and snares. But in the end is a great reward. Is your journey free of difficulty and trial and self-denial and sacrifice? Perhaps you need to consider where your journey is taking you. But a life lived to the glory of God is evidenced in one's journey in the direction of godliness, of holiness, of a love for the truth. It's not always easy. It will be filled with numerous trials, but in the end, it leads you safely home. In what direction are you walking? Secondly, we see verse 10. You can know you have eternal life because of of the love in your life for others. See verse 10, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. So now the author is moving from general to specific, dealing not just with walking in the right direction, but what we do along the way. And the first thing he addresses is our love for others. When Jesus was asked, what, what is most important of all of what God has commanded? Of course, his response was brilliant. He was being asked, teacher, of all the Ten Commandments, which of them is the most important? And we know that was a trick question. They wanted to be able to trap Jesus, saying that one of these is more important than others, and so they accuse him of disregarding the totality of God's law. But what does Jesus do? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And what does Jesus do? He takes the first four commandments and he summarizes that as loving God. He takes the second portion of the law, the remaining six commandments, and summarizes them as loving your neighbor. In other words, all 10 commandments are important because all 10 commandments make up what God wants of us, and it can be summarized as loving God and loving our neighbor. And this is a hallmark of Christianity, isn't it? Now, Jesus and the writer of Hebrews, they're not talking about having goosebumps because you have a wonderful uh, feeling when you hear a love song or when you get nervous around someone uh, that you have emotional feelings for. They're talking about love in action. 
the kind of love that you show to others for the glory of God. Love in the Bible is defined as an action, something we do. What do you do to show love to someone else? When you love others, regardless of what you think about them as a person, you are seeing evidence of your life in Christ. When you respond to the hostility of your enemy with mercy and grace, you are loving them. When you reach out to a brother or sister in Christ who is in need, even if they aren't naturally the the person that you might gravitate toward or want to spend your time with, you are showing love. When you die to yourself day after day to show your spouse and your children that you care about them by putting their needs and preferences above your own, you are showing love. You see, Christian love that assures us of our Christian faith is love that is shown, but it's not necessarily felt all the time. It's an evidence of your relationship with Christ. It's an indication that you are in Christ. John 15, 13 says, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You see, it's an active love. Romans 5, 6, at the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Again, action. And for whom? For the ungodly. And other translations get it right when they say for God's enemies. When we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. Why? Because he was showing us love in action. So you can have confidence and assurance in the faith if you are supernaturally moved to love others, no matter who they are, by dying to yourself and seeking to live for their advantage over and above your own. What do you do with your resources and your time toward those who are your enemies or your neighbors or your friends or your family or your brothers or sisters in Christ? All of that says a lot about whether or not you're being shaped into the image of Christ and whether or not you can have real assurance of eternal life. Thirdly, again, verse 10, you can know you have eternal life because of the way you serve. Notice there, he says, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. And he says that you're doing so in his name in serving the saints, as you still do. They continue on in doing this. Now, notice specifically here, he is addressing a certain kind of work, namely that which is tied to serving the saints. So another way we can say this is that you can know you have eternal life because you have a desire or a a willingness and an actual action in serving the body of Christ with your spiritual gifts. The point is, if you love Christ you will love his church. And one of the ways you love the church is to discover and to use your spiritual gifts for the good of the church. This is a critical point of examination for all of us. In what ways am I serving the body of Christ? Now hear what I'm about to say. This can be a way that we falsely assure ourselves, particularly if we're so busy doing stuff that we don't actually have anything to do with communing with God. I think a lot of people will arrive at the day of judgment to find that they've never actually walked with God will be people who have been very busy doing a lot of stuff in the church. That's exactly what Jesus says, right? Right? Lord, we 
did all these things in your name. I healed people. I cast out demons, right? They bring up all these things. I did all these things in your name. But what's the problem with their plea before Jesus? It's all about the things that they did. I did this in your name. Therefore, you should accept me into your heaven. But Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you, you worker of lawlessness. They're not saying, I trusted in you. I stood upon your righteousness alone, and by virtue of that, I now am able to stand before you and be accepted by you on the basis of your blood and righteousness alone. No, instead, many will say, I was a Sunday school teacher. I was a nursery worker. I was a VBS volunteer. I cut the grass. I was a deacon. I was an elder. I was a pastor. That's not going to cut it, is it? When we stand before God, our only plea, our only plea is that Jesus died for us and gave us a righteous standing that we did not deserve. We must be very clear in that. Where does my hope lie? Not ultimately in my works, not in my service to the church, but only Jesus' righteousness, only his death and resurrection, only him taking upon himself the penalty for my sin, only faith in Jesus by the grace of God alone. However, while we are not saved by our works, we have a salvation that works And the motivation to do those works is not to earn anything before God, but to honor God with a thankful heart and a joyful desire to see his kingdom flourish and multiply on the earth. So if you cannot identify that your spiritual gifts are being used in some way for the body of Christ, you either don't know what your gifts are and how to use them, And you need to ask and get help with that or perhaps you need to examine whether or not your desire and willingness is what it ought to be as a professing Christian. Listen, not everyone is gifted to be able to teach Sunday school. And I assure you, when something around here breaks, it's very likely that you don't want me working on it. It's going to cost a lot more in the long run. Some of you are terrified to talk to other people about the gospel. And you don't know if you can even even get the words out of your mouth. But you can cook a mean moho pork and have a warm, inviting home available for someone to come and sit with your unbelieving friend at dinner and talk to them about the gospel. You may not be able to sort out a filing cabinet or do payroll taxes, but you can run a leaf blower. You see, there are many, many ways for us to be useful for the body of Christ. And if you, if you hear of a need to serve and your first thought is that you don't want anything to do with it, there's a problem. We need to ensure our motivations are right. That's not to say that there are things that will come up that we don't want to do. They will. But are we willing to serve others? Are we willing to serve the church because it's God's church and we love her and want her to flourish and be faithful? That's what we're looking for. And if that's in our hearts, if that's our desire, we have evidence of salvation and can be confident in our faith. 
Fourthly, verse 11, you can know you have eternal life because you're concerned with having eternal life. He writes, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. The writer of Hebrews here is talking about having a pursuit of assurance, going after knowing that you know, being certain that you're certain of your standing with God. Again, pastors are often asked how people can know if they are truly saved. And I like to respond the same way that Charles Spurgeon often did when he was asked. And he said, if you are worried that you aren't, you probably are. And here's the point. If you care enough about whether or not you are truly a Christian and have that constant nagging thought that you might not actually belong to God, there's a very good possibility that you probably do because you have this desire to know, this desire to belong to God that stands alongside all these other evidences. What non-believer do you know who is saying, I really wish I was a child of God, but I just am not? In 1 Kings 3, there were, there were two women who came to King Solomon, you know the story, both claiming to be the mother of a single baby. And each of the mothers had this baby, but one of the babies had died. And one mother said to Solomon, her baby died, and at night she switched her dead baby with mine for a live one. The second mother made the same accusation. And so they they came down to Solomon asking him to determine who the baby really belonged to. And Solomon had one of his servants take a sword and hold the baby up. And then Solomon said, cut the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. Now, while one of the mothers agreed that this sounded like a reasonable way of handling this situation, the other said, no, don't do that. Give the baby to her. Who did the baby actually belong to? Well, the point of the story is to say that it was the one who wanted the baby to live, even if that meant she was going to live without him. But Solomon in his wisdom was using a principle that's built into the nature of how things are, namely that our concern for something is directly proportional to how much we care and have invested. And that principle is equally valid as it pertains to our walk with God. If you are concerned about your relationship with Christ and yet you are seeking with earnestness to have assurance to know that you are safe with him, there's a strong indication that you are in fact in Christ and on the road to assurance. Lastly, finally, verse 12, you can know you have eternal life because of what you are longing for. Again, he says, so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Are you longing to know God and to have a secure place in him? Are you longing to see the gospel reach the ends of the earth, to influence your family and your friends and your coworkers and your neighbors? Are you desiring to see your church grow and be faithful as a witness in your community? These are all gospel-centered, Christ-like desires and longings, and apart from the Holy Spirit in our lives, we don't have those things. Even more, though, what are your motivations? What is it that I'm depending on to help get me to heaven's shores? 
You see, the sort of ironic thing about having assurance is that the less we do in attempting to earn God's favor, the more sure we are of our standing in him. If I have in my mind that God is requiring all that he calls me to do as a Christian so that he can look at my works in the end and then give me pardon for my sin, if I did enough and if I did it in the right way, I'm always going to be trying harder to do better and it's never going to measure up. I'm going to try and try and try and I will fail and I will fail and I will fail because I can never fulfill the perfection that God requires. However, when my longing is to be in communion with God because I am, I am united to Christ by his life and his death and his resurrection on my behalf, when my longings to, to know God more and more and to have more of him in my life and to rest in him and to, to know him in his presence and to have peace in the truth and to have comfort and joy and hope in the word of God, When all of that is my heart and my longing, I will rest and I will be all the more assured of his love for me because it's not dependent on me. It's not dependent on my works. It's not dependent on what I can produce. And so then when my life is not about doing things in an effort to make known to God that I'm doing enough in the right way so that he'll love me, but doing them because my desire and longing is to glorify the one who has already saved me, I can be assured that I have right motivations and that my heart, as a result, is overtaken by the work of the Holy Spirit. So here's the golden question that you need to ask yourself whenever you struggle, whenever you're struggling with your assurance. What am I depending on for my salvation? If it's Christ alone, you're in a good place. And then examine your life and determine if you really are living upon Christ alone or if your works are entering into your hope for heaven. You see, most Christians, when they struggle with assurance, it's because something has happened where they have sinned or there's something grievous, some way they've given into temptation, some way that they have fallen, some way that they have, have done something that they know is opposed to God's word and they're struggling to look at themselves in the mirror every morning because they know as they see their own eyeballs, they're asking, how could you possibly say you're a Christian? It's when we start to believe the lies of the evil one who whispers in your ear, what are you doing? A Christian would never do this. What kind of Christian would ever live that way? And it's then when we need to ask ourselves, what am I depending on? Is it sinlessness? Is it a life of perfection? Is it all these works that I can point to and say, of course I'm a Christian because look at all the things I've done and how I've done them. No, brothers and sisters, the true assurance comes when we point to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, yes, I'm broken. Yes, I am tempted. Yes, I fall into that temptation from time to time. And yes, when I look at myself, I can be disgusted and ashamed. But Christ took all of that upon himself that I might say, not what I have done and not how I am doing it, but Christ and Christ alone. That is our only hope. And friend, if you are here 
this afternoon and you do not know this Christ, what are you depending on to get you from this life through the grave onto the next? I pray that you will look to the Lord Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, the one who can and will and does give us full and complete assurance that we are his and he is ours. I pray that the Lord, by the work of his spirit, will bring you to the end of yourself, that you no longer seek to look to your works and to stand upon your own righteousness because it is broken and faulty and it will never support the weight of your sin, but instead that you will look to the righteousness of the one who lived a perfect life and died a sinner's death and was raised from the dead, that he might reign and rule forever and ever, having conquered sin and death on our behalf. Friend, I pray that you will look to Christ, that you might live and have a full assurance of salvation. Brothers and sisters, we can know that we are in Christ by walking faithfully by his grace and for his glory. And if we are, there are evidences of that in our lives. They're not always bright and colorful and on full display but they're there. And so the next time someone cuts you off on the interstate and you succumb to the temptation to say to them all those things that are bound up in your heart, just turn to the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me. Don't look at your rearview mirror and say, how could you be a Christian? Again, yes, there are things we'll do. We'll be ashamed. That's life in a fallen world. But may God be pleased to give us greater assurance in the days ahead as we seek to live upon Christ who has given himself for us that we might have him as our very own possession. Amen, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us assurances in your word that we truly are in you by faith. We thank you, Lord, that we are not left to wonder. Did we do enough? Did we do it in the right way? Did I say the right things at the right times? Did I give enough of my time or my resources? Did I pray enough prayers? Did I read enough scripture? Did I teach enough classes? Did I give away enough money? Lord, thank you for not leaving us to wonder. Thank you, O oh God, that by faith alone, we can stand upon Christ and his righteousness and not depend upon our own works to know that we can know that we are truly safe in him. Lord, I pray for all of your people here that you would give us a full assurance of our salvation, that we would not doubt, that when we sin, yes, that we would see the shame in our sin and we would be quick to repentance, but that it would not cause us to waver in the way that the evil one desires, that we would question whether or not you truly love us as your children. Help us, O oh God, to walk faithfully Help us to see these evidences in our lives that you're working in us and through us for your glory. And we pray you would do all of this, that you might receive all of the glory in our lives. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. 
We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.